Thanks, Seth. Guys, I'm really glad Seth is going to be with us and leading us in worship. Um, if you think his voice is great, uh, you should see the way he leads his family, loves Jesus and other people. It's even better than his voice. And that thing's beautiful, right? So just to give you a picture of Seth. Um, if you're wondering where we'll be tonight, it'll be in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're new to your Bible, uh, head this way. So my, your right, uh, it might be your left. I don't know what it is. I'm not good with directions. But this way in your Bible, 1 Corinthians, into 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And, uh, you know, I've noticed at the beginning of semesters, we say these phrases like, we're glad you're here, especially if you're new. We're really glad you're here. I'm really glad all of you are here, new or not. You know, I'm just glad you're back. I'm glad you uh, have at least made it here. I don't know what kind of break you had. And I don't even know if you know who I am. My name is Michael. But what I want you to recognize is what we just did was not uh, singing to some Santa Claus in the sky, right? I want you to know that I don't know what kind of break you had, but if it was one filled with maybe shame and regret, when you sang to Jesus, you were declaring war on your past. You were letting Satan know that whatever happened isn't gonna keep happening. So we have to recognize the things we do aren't just because we wanna do church, but it's because they have significance when we do them. Then when we open this book, we're not just opening some book that has really great things to say, but that God himself decided to write a story and he wanted you to know that when you find him in it, you find your purpose, that you will find every single thing that you've been looking for. We are not here to just really enjoy the lights and the music. We want you to be here to enjoy the presence of the living God. We are not just doing church. We are not just here so we can hang out with our friends. We are here to gather as God's family, God's people, and enjoy his presence. You guys, the sermon I'm going to teach tonight, I don't know if I've ever felt more compelled by the things God has shown me than ever before, or at least in recent memory. I believe that if you let God speak to you tonight, the way he's begun to speak to me about this, it will ruin your life. And that might actually be the best thing that's ever happened to you. And so I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna ask you to do the same. Maybe you're coming into this place, you're like, I don't even know who God is. Tonight, you're gonna meet him. Or maybe you feel like you and God have been distant for some time or even just distant for a month because break was not at all what you thought it would be. I want you to know that God wants to meet you in this place. And if you'll let him, you could leave and never be the same. So let's pray that he would do that for us. Father, I have nothing of my own volition that would be helpful to any of these people to say tonight. I confess that I read stories like one in the Old Testament where I see that if you can speak through a donkey, it actually gives me confidence. That means you can speak through me because it's not about who it is that's talking and what they have to offer. It's just the fact that God was present and he used whatever means necessary to speak. And so tonight, would you use me? Would you use me to get myself out of the way and to get you front and center? Would what you have to say through your word be something that we don't just take in and think that's nice for a week, but would it actually affect us in a way that changes our entire life? That this sermon would be one that changes lifetimes in this room, Christian or not. That it would be one that in hearing what you have to say, we would, we would finally decide not to just ignore the truth we consume every week, but actually begin to live it out. 
that we would actually begin to live it out in a way that changes our lives and that maybe for the first time by doing what you seem to say in this book, we would actually experience the life you seem to promise. And I confess that I am so far on my journey from where I want to be, and yet what I find from you is not condemnation, but invitation. And so tonight, would every single person in this room hear the invitation of the God who formed them, come and see what I have for you. We want that, Jesus, more than anything. We pray it all in your name. Amen. So we left before break in chapter 8, where Paul was making a, a good little theological stink about the Corinthians' inability to watch what they ate for the sake of their weaker brothers in Christ. If you remember, Paul kind of said, like, you need to think about the way you're living because it affects the Christian brothers and sisters around you. So love your brother or your sister with what you eat. And see, the, the Corinthians, they had this problem. They were putting the filters of the way the world works over the way they were trying to live their Christian lives. They kept trying to take the economy of the kingdom and live it by the economy of the world. So the, the kingdom ethic, so the way of life, and ethic is just the way you live, does not compute with the ethics of our world. The way the world tells you how to live will never match up or actually work if you just try to do it the world's way. The kingdom always messes with it. The kingdom always creates something different. And the kind of ethic that Paul was trying to create was one of self-sacrifice for the good of others was of self-sacrifice for the good of others. He was trying to say, look, the more knowledge you get, it's not for you to grow higher in your belief that people are lower. It's actually for you to go as low as possible to love them so they can go higher. The kingdom flips everything upside down. It's kind of what it always has done, and that's what Jesus came to do, was turn our world upside down, actually right side up, if you begin to see what he says. So Paul was redefining this freedom, this idea of freedom in the kingdom of God. And in Corinthian culture and even our culture, knowledge meant power and superiority. The more knowledge you had, the better you were than the people around you. The more superior you could see yourself to those around you, especially if they had less knowledge or seemed unable to comprehend the things that you could comprehend. But Paul and Jesus, they flip that on its head. They say true knowledge is actually the knowledge of God, and actually it's the knowledge that he has of us. So it's the idea that real knowledge in the kingdom is just the fact that God knows you and that you know him. And what you do with that knowledge is not lord over, but serve under. You don't lord over people, you serve under them. See, true knowledge actually ends up looking a lot like love in the kingdom. And when you begin to gain true knowledge of God, you actually begin to live out the things that he said he wanted to do, which was love him and love people. And so what he says is, is you want to live this out in that kind of love. It always serves the world around us is what Paul was trying to help them see. It doesn't make you superior. It makes you a more sacrificial servant. Like I said, it doesn't allow you to lord over people. It actually allows you to serve under. You begin to see people as more important than yourselves. And you think about how your actions affect everyone, not just what can I do with my life. And it now will not just apply to the people we live with in church. See, the way you live will have an effect on the world around you because every single one of us who has been brought into the family of God is telling the world something about him every day that we walk out and interact with it. Whether you want to or not, if you claim Jesus, he has brought you into a mission 
whether you want to accept it or not, when you say, I know and follow Jesus, where he takes you is not to sit quietly until heaven. He actually brings you into the battlefield. He has a job for you to do, and it's crazy that he would allow us to do it, but it's exactly where he takes us, not into the safety in, in like a waiting room, hoping to sit in an airport terminal to fly somewhere. No, he takes you right into the war zone because he wants to use you for his kingdom. And he wants to use you through the way of love. So the reality of every single one of us in this room is on some scale or however you want to think about it, we are living a life that is either making it easier or more difficult for someone to accept the gospel. Your life is either making it easier or more difficult for those you interact with all the time to accept or reject the gospel. And you could imagine something like this and even just rules in general, people get kind of defensive. You know, like when you get accused of something, if you're like me, you immediately want to accuse the other person of something way worse. Bad marriage tactic, by the way. Guys, you'll always lose, okay? Bad marriage tactic. But it's something we kind of do. Like if we get accused, like we just instantly want to like, well, you're ugly, right? Like, I don't know what you say, but you just, you want to find a way to be like, well, you're guilty too. Like it's my, it's my thing. Like my wife and I had this big discussion recently, like, I usually make the mistake first, but then what I like to do is if she makes a mistake back, I go, yeah, but you did too, right? Like, I think you should apologize for the way you said that, and then I'll apologize for what I did, right? We don't want to accept blame, and I think the Corinthians, they were getting a little defensive because the way Paul opens chapter nine, it says this. It says in verse one, he goes, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, at least I am to you because you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. See, what happened to Paul is I think he was being accused. They're like, okay, Paul, you're coming after our life. You're, you're looking at the way we're living. What about you? What about the way you live? What are you doing with your life? Like, we're gonna come after you and kind of point out maybe you're not doing things the way you're supposed to. And just a side note, you, you don't accuse the Apostle Paul of not living like Jesus. Like the only other guy you don't accuse of not living like Jesus is Jesus, okay? Like the dude, I think, was probably the most godly guy that's ever lived since God himself. That's probably not true. It's probably some little old lady who died in Nebraska a couple years ago or something like that, but, <laughs> right? But he's the wrong guy to come at. Like his whole life was oriented around following Jesus. It doesn't mean he didn't mess up, but if one guy's trying to do it, it was him. And so what Paul begins to do in this passage, all the way through to verse uh, 18, then even into 19, we'll read chunks of it here and there, is he's, he's making it clear, like, look, I have rights and I have freedoms. Being an apostle, it comes with privileges, it comes with honor, it comes with things that I just deserve, like one of them is a believing wife. Um, another is just an opportunity to be blessed in different ways. Like he's saying, look, I have all those rights, but what he seems to keep doing is saying, but I don't take advantage of any of them. We're going to figure out why, but... There's one in particular that I want to draw your attention to. It's in verse seven, actually, that Paul's talking about. And I'm gonna read probably up till verse 14 or whatever. I don't know, we'll see. So he says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Or who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk from the flock? He says, am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. What Paul is trying to say here is like, look, if you plant the garden, you get to eat the fruit. Paul planted a spiritual garden amongst the Corinthians. Doesn't he have a right to like reap some sort of benefit? Yes, material, but also spiritual for them. So let's keep going. 
He says, is he really saying this thing about the oxen for our sake? Yeah, it's written for our sake because he who plows ought to plow in hope and he who threshes should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? He's basically saying, look, if we're gonna serve you and love you, isn't it okay if you give us a bed to sleep in, some money to buy food, and maybe a few meals and a bath? Like, think of it that way. He's saying, look, if we're doing this, like as an apostle, shouldn't I be entitled to this? It literally says that it is a command. Like look at verse 13 and 14. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple, Old Testament thing, and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar. In the same way, here it is, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. I'll unpack why I'm parking here for a minute. So what he is saying is that if I wanted to, I could ask all of you to pay my salary, right? I got twins on the way, so we'll see. I might need some deeper pockets and more diapers. But what it's saying there is like as someone who, who works for God, they are, they are entitled, they have this right to then ask those that they minister to, to give to them. And, and we have a really broken culture of money uh, in our world, but also of generosity in the church. And that's why I'm pulling over to talk about it for a minute. See, what we do at Salt Company is we ask all of the graduating seniors if they, when they leave, would give for like the next three years, when they go off and get jobs that pay way more than mine do, like would you go and would you consider what was done for you and give back to it for the next few and just for the sake of the staff that poured into you? Does that make sense? And, and the question as I was thinking about that is what is stopping you from waiting until you're a graduated senior to start giving right now? What is stopping you from becoming the kind of person who would give right now? And some of you have legitimate uh, things for why you wouldn't do that. And I want you to know this isn't a guilt trip, okay? This is not gonna be a guilt trip. It's actually gonna hopefully redefine the way you and I think about money and generosity because it matters. So please listen. So what you usually hear in a church is about a tithe, right? Does everybody maybe know what a tithe is? Like 10%. So a lot of churches, they ask, like, we would love if you give 10% or they track, like, what's your percentage that you're giving as a giver in the church? And I want you to know, the Apostle Paul never mentions a tithe and Jesus never did either. They never mentioned a tithe and, and Jesus never did either. But you know why they ask, like, why churches do this? It's not because it's a New Testament principle. One, I think it's just pragmatic. Like it's just easy to track. Who in our church is demonstrating with their money where their heart's at? It's just easy to track. But here's the second thing. It's because 10% is like the easiest place to start. Like that should be a given that when you recognize all that God has done for you, you're like, yeah, I guess you can have 10%, right? I think 10% should be the bare minimum, and so did Jesus. In fact, Jesus actually said you should get everything away, that you should live a life so open-handed and so aware of the abundance that God has given you, not just in material benefit, but spiritual, that you recognize the money you have, it's not yours. You know that, right? Like we've been, believe this culture, well, I worked for it, so it's mine. No, in an instant, God could cause you to lose your job and you would have nothing. It's out of his goodness that he's given it to you, and yet we act like it's all ours. Jesus' New Testament principle is literally everything's on the table. Every talent, all the time, every ability, and every dime should be on the table. And he was saying, because where your heart is, like where your, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. He said it the other way, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's talking about everything. 
Your checking account tells a story. Your life tells a story. Your hours tell a story. The things you spend your time doing are telling a story about how you think about the generosity of God towards you in your life. And I think it's fair to stop and ask you, what kind of story is your life telling? Yes, with your bank account, but with your time. I mean, the least, like, Saul Company, isn't it true? The least we could do is give our money. And I'm telling you, God started bugging me about this. And if you want to pray a really dangerous prayer, this is when you pray. God, if you were in charge of my bank account, what would you do with it? I'm telling you right now, I have given away more money than ever before, and I have never once gone hungry. And yet I still have days where I hold on to it and I spend it on what I want. But I'm telling you, if you pray that prayer, something will happen. And it should be easy. Like money should be the easiest thing we give away when we know Jesus Christ gave away his own life, right? If we have a problem understanding that, God's not here to shame you, but he's here to nudge you with conviction and remind you, like I've given you everything. It says we have access to every spiritual blessing in the heavens. But we get so closed-minded and only think materialistically that when we think of heavenly blessings, we're like, well, it doesn't look like something I can click on or hold, so why would I want it? And Jesus wants to change that in us. One of the greatest reasons the church seems to be so bad at, at witnessing is because we're so good at looking just like everybody else, holding on to our money when it's not ours in the first place. And it's not just the 10% that we're looking for. I'm telling you, give to a compassion child. Give to a homeless person. Give to a rando in the sidecar coffee shop. A random person. Sorry, that's like old school slang. My bad. Here's, here's a good question. I, I, it's really important you hear. We're not angry. I just think you're missing out. It's one of those moments where your selfishness is actually just causing you to miss out on the life God intends for you. God does not command generosity because he needs your money. He actually says, why don't you be generous? Because he wants your heart. Because he's so desperate for your heart and he knows wherever you invest your time, your money and your energy, your heart will be there. And he is jealous because he knows he's the only thing your heart really needs and really desires. And he's not content when you give your heart away to yourself, which is too small or other things, which will just make you slaves. So if you leave and you think, well, that guy just yelled at me for my money, then you weren't listening because the God of the universe wants your heart and he knows one of the best places to start is with your money. And he's desperate for you, so he'll do everything he can to get your attention. Here's a great question to ask. Do you spend more money on things you want than you do on the kingdom of God? Want, not need. So like you should drink milk and eat bread, that's good, okay? And you should pay for rent. That's a great call. But do you spend more money on things you want than you do on the kingdom of God? And I'm okay if that sounds extreme because it's going to take a lot for us to change the culture. And it's really just going to take the Holy Spirit. But ask the question. Because the generosity of God should lead us to break away from the culture of scarcity we live in. We're constantly told, you don't have enough, you don't have enough. And that's just not true. You have everything Put God like on the spot, so to speak. Be so generous that you don't know what to do. Maybe not with your student loan payments. Like you should not spend student loan money on things you don't need, but, but be generous. Like what would you be doing differently if Jesus had control of your bank account? I know almost every person in this room probably has some capacity to make money and give it. It's just who are you gonna give it to? What are you gonna do with it?
And again, you're, you're missing out. Self-love, the way you spend it, it's actually never going to make you that happy. Give God your heart by starting with your money. That's my little moment for you. See, the thing that keeps us from all of this and actually will seep into the rest of the passage is we live in a culture that has an epidemic called self-love. The reality is that each and every one of us is pretty much a narcissistic individual, right? I thought way too much about how you guys were gonna think about what I looked like tonight, okay? All of us are so consumed with self that it might be the thing that is most in the way of us actually living the life Jesus wants us to live. And I think Paul knew that. And I, and I want you to know, Paul wasn't writing to guilt trip the Corinthians when he was saying these things, and I'm not saying that to you either. I, I really wanna stop and say that. But what Paul was saying, he says, I, I have a right to all that stuff. I, I get it, I want it, but he says, but I take none of it. He actually was like, I don't take anything. Why? Why on earth would the guy not take a paycheck from the churches he's serving? because he didn't want anything to get in the way of the reason he was living. Okay, so the apostle Paul wanted no one to accuse him of preaching the gospel for any other reason but the fact that he might save some people. His whole life was oriented around sharing the gospel, about getting to talk about Jesus. Every decision he made from the moment he wake up to the moment he went to bed was how could I preach the gospel? His reward, his goal, his purpose, what he wanted was just another opportunity, another opportunity, another opportunity. And he would stop at nothing to make sure nothing stood in the way of another opportunity for him to preach the gospel with his life and with his words. Every day for Paul was a day filled with potential to preach the gospel and see people walk into the kingdom of God from the kingdom of darkness. And so he unpacks that and then he says this crazy thing in verse 19. He says, although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. Okay, what is Paul doing there? He's attacking the cultural epidemic of narcissism that we live in. But what he's saying there, it's not like he's like, I go to anyone's house and do their laundry for them. Hopefully they'll listen to me, tell them about Jesus, right? Paul's not saying like, I go to people's houses and mow their lawns and then ask them if they have a minute for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's not what he's saying. No, what Paul is saying. So a slave, that's a status. That's like how he viewed himself. What he is saying is I put myself beneath every single person I meet so that I can see them the way that I should and have an opportunity to speak to them about Jesus. It's this posture of humility, this posture of a servant. Paul wanted to be absolutely sure that he didn't think he was better than anybody else. And he didn't want anyone to think that he had ulterior motives or reasons for doing what he was doing. And then he unpacks that in verse 20. He says, to the Jew I became a Jew, to win Jews, to those under the law, like one under the law though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. Verse 21, to those who are without the law, like one without the law. He's saying, look, I, I became all things to all people. He says, to the weak, I became weak. To the strong, strong. He's saying, I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. I do all of this because of the gospel so that I might share in its blessings. And there's a very powerful and deep assumption in this passage that we have to, to wrestle with in our own hearts. See, this passage implies that spreading the gospel and the kingdom of God is the goal of your life. 
it implies, it assumes that your life is oriented around sharing the gospel with everything you do. We will not be able to apply it if we don't at least first acknowledge that it is or isn't the goal of our lives, right? It assumes that it's going to influence and affect all of our choices. And if you're like me, that truth is just not true. I do not make every single decision I do not look at my life in every single facet and think, how is this another opportunity to share the gospel? Where is another person I could interact with and potentially tell them that someone has come for them to save them from death and bring them into life? And we don't live in a world or a culture that operates like this at all, right? We live in a culture of, of entitlement, aka participation medals, right? We all think we deserve something. It's not very good for you, for your teachers to let you fail the race and still give you a ribbon, culture of entitlement. We think we deserve things that we really don't. And then narcissistic individualism. I'm just beating up on Instagram. Right? Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. We live in a culture where you're told your desires, your needs, and what you want is more important than anything and anyone. Consciously or subconsciously, that is the first way that most of us begin to make our decisions. And what that actually does is it does something really dangerous because then people who are different from us become less than. People who are different from us, we then avoid because we're in an endless pursuit of our own happiness and we cannot let anything or anyone get in the way. And so we belittle people, we put them down or we avoid them completely. And most of us wake up every single morning and we live a 24-hour day and then a seven-day week and then year after year after year after year only thinking about ourselves, only chasing our dreams, only pursuing our goals. It's all about us. And culture's constantly selling us the idea that this is what we need to do to make us happy, that we need to indulge in all the things we want, that we need to consume all the things that we think will make us feel better and follow our hearts. And I wanna ask, if that is you, how is that going? How is the narrative of the world playing out for you? Did those things you let yourself have over break bring you the happiness that was better than Jesus? Did the way you got angry with that person make you feel better than if you had loved them like Jesus? Did the parents who aren't Christians and really hard to live with walk away thinking, I think I might need to reconsider this Jesus thing because of the way my child just lived with me for a month? should bother you. Like, guys, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. I cannot stop thinking about the wrong ways that I think. And what I've actually found with God is he's not like, yep, stupid, and you better figure it out. No, little by little, he said, come follow me. Come follow me. You don't need to get anywhere. I'm going to meet you where you're at and take you where I want you to go. But I want to follow I want to follow him. Something is bothering me about the default way that I live. We're not actually happy if you gave me just for a moment the truth about how you really feel. I know now or very soon you'd say, yep, it didn't work. It bottomed out again. That thing that I thought would make me happy made me miserable. And now I feel like a slave. I think maybe Jesus was on to something when he said, for whoever wants to save his life, preserve it, keep it, make it happy, will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it will find it. But see, this, this doesn't make sense in our culture. Why would you put aside your needs and wants for somebody else? That doesn't compute in our world. 
It does if you're one of those really great humanitarians, but most of us, that's not really what you want. And a lot of those people who are doing those good things are doing them so they feel good, not so they can actually help the people. But sacrificing and lowering yourself is how the kingdom of God works. Because remember, he turns everything upside down. Jesus Christ came and said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. But to serve. Jesus put himself as low as you can go. No one will serve as low as Jesus did. No one will. And what he says is, if you follow me, you will actually live out the true and better human story. The one that I wrote with my life and I've now given to you. Follow me. So how the heck do we do it? The first thing we need to do is in a few different ways, we need to die. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write really bold, maybe you have a red pen, die, okay? Because it's been really heavy, I thought I'd say something funny, half of you are like, okay, no. Okay, first, where do we die? We die to ourself. The first place we die is to self. You and I need to die to ourselves. See, the Apostle Paul died the day he met Jesus. All of his goals and all of his dreams disintegrated before the God of the universe. He said in another letter, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ. Not Jesus on the side and maybe when it's convenient or I feel guilty. No, to live was Jesus himself, his way, his thoughts, his mission, his purpose. You will never be able to live the kind of life that this passage is calling us to if you are the most important person and have the loudest voice in your own life. Jesus has to have it. We have to let go of the identity we're trying to craft for ourselves and start to let Jesus give us the one he made for us instead, which is actually a lot better. See, we have to recognize that if our Savior would end his life washing the feet of his disciples and then hanging on a cross for the sins of the world. We have to realize if that's how his life ended, that's how most of our life should probably resemble. If that's how he's going to end his life and display who he really is, we have got to be kidding ourselves if we avoid anything close to that and think that we're actually doing and living the way he called us to. Jesus did not die for us to pray a prayer and wait for heaven. He died so we would have a new way of life and a better dream and a better purpose. And that's the second way you have to die. You have to die to your dreams and your desires. You have to put your dreams and desires on the altar. Sometimes he will take them off, redeem them and use them. But often he will let them die because he doesn't have something that's like more dutiful. He actually has something that's better. He actually has something that's better. Most of us want Jesus to stay in a box, right? We want him to stay in, we give him this space. Like he gets to have this influence, but everything else, I get to make those decisions. I get to decide where I go to college. I get to decide who I marry. I get to decide what I do with my money. We don't let Jesus have what he died for and what he actually called us to. Like Jesus did not die for you to pray a prayer and then hand in that prayer when you get to heaven. No, he died to give you a new life. He literally said, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. Not hold your iPhone and enjoy your white picket fence. Pick up your cross. You cannot just add Jesus and enter life as usual. Paul's entire life came under the control of lordship of Jesus. Do you know how many times that dude walked into a village and got beaten basically to death within an inch of his life? 
I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound very fun to me. If I had a choice between like going to a water park and getting the crap kicked out of me because I told somebody about Jesus, I would do the water park. But what that reveals is Paul's life was not his. Paul's desires were not his. Paul's dreams were not his. They were Jesus's. He had given his entire life to Jesus. And and the aim and the goal and the dreams you have, like I said, it's not that they're actually more exciting. It's that the dreams you have are often too boring and too small. They'll only last on this side. And the one that Jesus is offering you will last into eternity. The dreams and desires Jesus will give you will echo into eternity and last far longer than anyone you're giving yourself to right now. And that's crazy. Like, you have to realize that it doesn't make sense that God would trust us as the people who would bring the light of the world to those around us. I want to be a part of that. That sounds so much better than me trying to get a bigger house or a better car or better kids or to try to just be safe and and stay in my little bubble and make it through to the end. I want to live. Don't you want to live? Like we're millennials, you guys. We want our lives to matter. Then stop making you the only thing that matters and give your life to Jesus. He's not offering you something boring. He's actually offering you the life you really want. It's just so often when he comes to us and he says, follow me, we say, in a little bit, I'm busy. Or okay, maybe for a few weeks. Or maybe for four years. And then when you leave this place, you never talk to him again. He's bigger and he's better than that. Here's another prayer that will ruin your life. It's ruining mine. Jesus, if you had total control of my hopes, dreams, desires, and schedule, what would you do differently? I'm telling you, don't. If you're someone who prays, don't pray that. Don't do it. I'm serious. Don't do it. That's sarcastic. You should do it. Ask him, okay, if you were in control, total control of my hopes, my dreams, my desires, my future, my schedule, everything, what would you do differently? And then listen. Listen. Okay, the last thing that we have to die to, and I'm not close to done, so if you're like, this dude's boring, you can go. It won't offend me. Um, We have to die to our preferences. We have to die to our preferences, okay? See, most believers are actually really good at looking nothing like Jesus because they do everything they can to avoid anyone who's different from them. Most Christians are really good at looking nothing like Jesus because they do everything they can to avoid anyone who's different from them. We are way too quick to let our preferences, political affiliations, someone else's sexual orientation, likes and dislikes, and even just our own self-arrogance. We're too quick to let that make us feel superior and then distant from those around us. Like, if you think a Democrat or a Republican is an idiot, or if you think being a homosexual is gross, there's something wrong with your heart. You have chosen a preference that Jesus Christ would not choose. You have chosen a preference. And here, if you're like me, this is what's true. I'm not godly enough um, or, or, or holy enough yet to have preferences without pretty often using them against other people, right? I often use my preferences to make myself feel better about what I'm doing or what I'm believing. I often use my preferences to lower people and make them less than human, not more human or actually the kind of human they deserve to be. I usually lower them. And if you remember Jesus Christ put aside literally every preference he could possibly have to come for us. 
Jesus put aside every preference, became as much like us as absolutely possible so he could have a chance to save everyone in the world. God, who is perfect and holy, put on the weakness of human flesh and dwelt with his fallen creation for the hope that he might rescue them from the tyranny and the horror of sin. Okay, then after we've died, we begin to see. We need to begin to see. So what we often do is we, we don't see people as real people. So what we need to do is we realize we label people too quickly and we give them identity through their life choices and preferences and not their immortal reality as image bearers. Like Christian or not, every single person on the planet was formed by the God of the universe. That gives them inherent and innate value. Far beyond then the choices they make, they are an image bearer of God. God thought it fit and good for them to exist. Therefore, we should treat them as such. But what we do is we reduce people to their preferences and their insecurities and we dehumanize them so we don't actually have to value them. It's easier to look at somebody, I'm just gonna use it like a Democrat and not as Dave, sorry Dave, if you're a Democrat, because well, oh, it's just their preference and I hate their preference. It's really hard to look Dave in the eyes and go, man, I don't even like you. We need to see people as people. C.S. Lewis said this crazy quote that I'm gonna read and you might forget it, but I think it's amazing, so I'm gonna read it. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or a horror and a corruption such as you know, if you meet at all only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection, whatever that means, proper to them, that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. What he's basically saying is that whole idea of them being Jewish or Greek or strong or weak, that's not what's going to last. But the fact that they're an immortal image bearer, that thing's going to go on forever. Where are they going to go? Because God has decided you have a say. You can have kingdom influence for worse or for better by the life you live and the way you love. Paul knew that beneath all of that, if, so what he did is he said, well, I'm gonna let go of all my preferences. I'm gonna let go of all my judgments. I'm gonna become the absolute servant in a way where I never think I'm better than anybody else so that I can just say one thing to them about Jesus. If I could just say one thing, because he knew what was at stake in his interactions was eternity. Like, do you realize if we begin this journey and you take this seriously, if Salt Company became known for the kind of ministry where it's people treat everybody else like they're gonna last forever and they want them to go and be with God, we would change the world. That impact would not just stay here in Cedar Falls, it would ripple to the ends of the earth because that's how it happened to us. Because 12 men realized this, took it seriously, and now here we are. And we've heard it. And now we're not being told, just stay. We're being told, go and live. It would be incredible. I promise I'm almost done. You would not dismiss or avoid someone if you saw them like this. So lastly, what do we do? The first thing, if you're like me, that you need to do, repent. Repent. Admit 
that you've messed this up and meet the loving grace of your Father in heaven. You will not meet a judgmental hand telling you, finally, stupid, you realized it. You will hear the words of a father who said, get up, follow me again. Get up, follow me again. That's what you will hear. So we repent, we admit something's wrong, and then what we begin to do is we begin to look. We have an awareness for the world around us. We, we begin to see the person checking out our groceries as someone who we could impact for eternity. We begin to see our parents who don't know Jesus as more than just annoyances. And guys, I was there and I treated my parents like crap for too many years. It is by the grace of God that they know Jesus and still talk to me. Because I would go home thinking, well, my church has it figured out and your lives are garbage. So therefore you treat me like garbage, I get to treat you like garbage. This passage says that's not at all how this happens. So we have to have an awareness. Do we, go, do we go into the places we're going to be a witness? Do we think about the lives that we're living and how they may or may not witness? Then we just, we trust the Holy Spirit, right? Like you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. He will show you things and, and show you where to go and how to go there. So we depend on him. And this is really important though. Going and doing these things, like becoming their friend, like that's a really good one. Like talking to them figuring out who they are, and I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, so you don't compromise the gospel, right? In all of this, when you go to these people and you listen to them and you love them, you don't go like watering down the gospel because what good is that? You're actually just convincing them of something that's not true. So you don't flinch on the reality of the gospel. Where you do flinch is your own selfishness and judgment. You don't compromise the gospel because that's no good for them. You gotta preach the truth, but you have to do it with a life that loves. So first, you have to have compassion. You see in the Bible again and again and again, Jesus had compassion on the crowd. Jesus com had compassion on the woman. When he's doing that, he's recognizing each of them has a story worth telling and a need in that story worth healing. When Jesus has compassion on people, he's saying they have a story worth telling and then they have a wound worth healing. So you have compassion at, do you know the stories of the people around you? Have the, you given them a chance to have a history? Do you know what makes them who they are? Typically, the preferences that people have around you that you don't like, it's just their way of band-aiding their spiritual brokenness because they haven't met Jesus yet. And so if we saw these preferences that way, it actually might change the way we treat them. The next thing you do is listen, right? Often we have this tendency with people we don't like or agree with, we're just waiting for our chance to tell them why they're wrong. What if we actually weren't looking for a chance at all and we just started to listen? What if we started to listen? And then I think lastly, you, you, need, to make, you need to realize it's gonna take time. You have to give them your time. A little bit here and a little bit there and then a little bit more here and a little bit more there. You have to actually invest in them. Be, be where they are, right? So like there's wisdom in that. Like if you go to a bar with someone who doesn't know Jesus, you probably shouldn't drink as much as they're going to, right? I hope that's a no-brainer. If not, come here and I'll pray over you after this. Right, but Jesus, like you guys know, Jesus was accused of being a drunk and overeating all the time. Jesus was being accused of being drunk and overeating. And I promise he never did either of those things, but it's because he was with those people so much that they thought, well, you must be like them. I would, that would, I would rather you err on that side. I would rather you be with people who don't know Jesus so much that people would come up to me, and no one on campus actually knows who I am, and be like, one of your SALT students, like they're always with these people. Like, 
it would be so incredible if we had a group of believers who were known with hanging out with the kind of people who weren't like us. That, I think, would mean that we're starting to look like Jesus. And then lastly, what you need to realize is it does not mean living this life, even if you got it perfectly right, it doesn't mean 100% success rate. Paul says it in, in, in this passage itself. He says, so that I may win some, right? Even Jesus, Jesus did not have a really fruitful ministry. Often when the biggest crowd show up, he'd say the weirdest things and they all leave. By the time that he died, even the 12 apostles left, all he was left with was his mom, John, and a few of the women who stayed close, Right? But it's living in a way that no matter who you interact with, they walk away and go, something about them. There's something about them. And then they would know it's Jesus. That the kind of life you live would almost bring them to decision every time you talk to them. Every time you spend time with them, that they would walk away wrestling with like, Jesus must be real, even though I don't want him to be because of the way Kate loves me or because of the way Molly talks to me, like, because of the way Josiah dances with me, right? Like, there's something about the way those people work and live that makes me have to think God must be real. And I want this ministry to be one that never flinches with the truth of the gospel. But even if those you preach it to do flinch, they can't help but be like moths to the flame of the way you love them. That even if what you're saying is hard for them to hear, they come back because of the way you love them. And to end, our motivation is Jesus, right? No one could get lower than the Son of God. In heaven, ruler and creator of all things became a baby and then lived as a homeless rabbi, healing everybody he could find, preaching truth to anybody who would listen. And then, more than a slave, he died a criminal for you and for me. You can't get lower than that. He gave up his body. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so for us to live this way, it's just to say, I want to follow you, Jesus. And he says, come and follow me. Jesus never asks us to do anything he hasn't already done. And I promise some of you will probably now live the most sacrificial lives anyone could ever see because I believe that the Holy Spirit's alive in this place and will push you to that place. But you will probably not even get close, not even like a millimeter closer to the kind of sacrifice Jesus made. But you will walk into heaven with a greater joy. And you will live a life that you know every day, even as valleys have purpose beyond any purpose the world would give you. And so 1 Corinthians 9 needs to be our anthem. It needs to be the thing that we run back to. It needs to be the place where maybe we put something in the ground and we say, this is it, this kind of way I want to live. And I want to pray that it happens, and then we're going to sing. Oh, Jesus, I have no idea how you came to this place and had the compassion that you did I have no idea how you came to this place and you listened the way you did and you gave the time that you gave. But one thing I know is you came to me where I was. You didn't ask me to change. You didn't tell me to clean up. No, you came to me in my mess and you got messy for me so I could be clean. And tonight, all we wanna do is follow you. And it'll look really messy and it'll be imperfect and we'll make mistakes. But I know 
but the smile of the Father will be there saying, yes, follow me. I'm not content with a life that just goes to a few church services and kind of does nice things. I want my life to die so that yours can live through me. I want my life to die so that yours can live through me. The greatest purpose I have ever found is to give my life to the one who found me. Would that be true of each of us tonight? Would that be true of each of us in a way where tonight's not just another salt sermon, but tonight changes the trajectory of everything we've been living for up till now? Would that be true? In Jesus' name, amen.